0: Therefore, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up as a substitute for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous, to not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Gentleness, faith, goodness, and self-control. Tonight, as we prepare to study the book of Zechariah, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and then I'll open us in some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have uh, the freedom in this nation to worship you to be able to print the Word of God, the Bibles, and distribute them freely. We're thankful, Father, that we even have the opportunity to have our Bible clubs uh, in the evening in public schools, our Good News Clubs. We also pray, Father, that we will have a desire to to present the Gospel to others and not just those here at home but those abroad as well and support those efforts because we know that that is truly the peace that affects mankind we're also thankful Father for uh, this nation that uh, allows us uh, freedoms we continue to pray for our each and every administration that they would have better understanding of the divine institutions, that they would be supported by legislation and not harmed by them. We pray, Father, for uh, the establishment principles upon which this nation is based, that we might uh, revere them and realize that that it is those establishment principles that bring us prosperity and blessing. We pray as we study tonight the book of Zechariah that we'll see how you administer your righteousness and justice, and certainly sovereignty, but also love towards the the nation of Israel, a nation that you chose to be your own, and that you require them to be faithful, faithful and obedient. And for nations that uh, rise and fall, You have really similar requirements, similar requirements that tell us that we must be respectful and revere the God of the universe and respect His truth and His principles and His institutions. And therefore, as Israel needs to learn, we pray, Father, that America would learn, that we would respond in faith and obedience. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, tonight, as we return to our book of Zechariah. Zechariah. We have this opening slide that addresses God's encouragement and comfort. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time tonight as, uh, there are questions asked, and um, we're going to get involved with the first, the first vision. It's a night vision, and we're going to see God's encouragement and comfort to Israel. But through these eight visions that we're going to see, some uh, categorize them as six and have sort of a transition or an interim uh vision in the middle of two halves but we're going to take them just as eight visions but we're going to see that we will lay out god's plan god's future for his people and in the prophecy that we see here we're going to see that there is the promise of a of the coming king um, we have studied the first few verses, and used this as a background, and I won't be covering it all the time, but I think it's important for us to have these eight points, realizing that we are in the post-exilic period, and that's very important. Uh, We're no longer listening to Isaiah and Jeremiah or any of the uh, other prophets, who were warning about coming discipline, that has already occurred. 586 has already occurred. And as a matter of fact, uh, we've even had the uh, 70 years of exile and now Zechariah is back in the land, both he and Haggai, uh, exhorting the uh, returnees, those who had returned from exile, to return to the uh, uh, statutes and the commands that the Lord had, had given Israel. And so our point one here is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all post-exilic books, and these are prophets that are speaking to, the, to those who have returned. Nebuchadnezzar conquered and took captives to Babylon. We saw that in 605, 697, and 586. But then in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great of Persia conquers Babylon. And a year later, 538, as we go down the years B.C., Cyrus decreed exiled captives to return to Jerusalem. And they did. In 537 and 536, the altar was restored and the foundation laid for the temple. However, there was resistance in the land. And... uh, since there was resistance to the work the the work stopped it should have pressed on but it didn't under Haggai and Zechariah the temple was completed in 515 BC that is yet future to our time with Zechariah uh, we are in 520 and so 5 years from now even though they have once more begun to work on the temple it's going to be uh, about 5 years before it's completed and the situation in Judah was bleak and the people were discouraged. And that's where we find Zechariah. Zechariah, beginning, let me just, I think I can uh, read this right down to verse 7. We rushed a little bit at the end of last class as we finished verse 6. So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word came to Zechariah the son of Bachariah, Bachariah, uh, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Now we see that this is again in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, where probably uh, most scholars place this in about November of 520. That's where they, th- they think this is approximately where we are. Uh, And it says that the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. In other words, these, uh, Zechariah is speaking to those who have returned, and the Lord was angry with the uh, their ancestors of those who are in the land now. And the ancestors uh, that are in view here are the ones that failed to be obedient prior to the Babylonian captivity and it says that the Lord uh, has been very angry with your fathers and of course we looked at the word angry we understand that it's an anthropopathism Uh, God doesn't get angry God simply nails you with justice and uh, it appears that God's angry but God is very tranquil about going about it and every now and then you'll you'll see uh, someone who administers justice that way it's just very casual, very sort of uh of routine they are simply uh, have some have their the standards of the law on their side, and they will just meter out the judgment and that's what the Lord is doing here. therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts there couldn't be uh A stronger indication here of the character of God the sovereignty of God I'll mention this one more time when we see this again as we get over to verse 7 but I think I mentioned last time that uh, the phrase the Lord of hosts is going to be used at least 53 times in the book of uh, Zechariah and when we add the three chapters of Haggai And the four chapters of Malachi, we boosted up to 80. And so these prophets in the post-exilic period wanted to let the people know that God was, in fact, still in control. God was in control, even though it seems rather dismal in the land. I'm going to show you a map here in a moment to show you how the land has really decreased in size. Um, But even though it was dismal in the land, the fact is, is that God was still managing conditions, managing the uh, situation personally in the land. And we're going to see how that works out with this first vision. So it's the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preach, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So we have the same God prior to the captivity that we do afterwards. Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. And we're going to see the word turn here used in two uh, two ways, but they really are complementary. When we say turn from something, it means that uh, there is activity ongoing that needs to stop and there needs to be another activity begin. And the, the picture we have, the word picture we have, is that you're doing something here. You need to stop and turn from doing that and begin doing this. And the idea, of course, in the word of God is that you turn from something that's wrong and you uh, d- redirect your attention to something that's right. And when we say that, in the Old Testament, we very often use the word repent. You need to repent from your evil ways, turn from your evil ways, and begin doing things that are righteous and just. So return now, or turn, repent now from your evil ways, and your evil deeds. But they, the fathers, did not hear, nor did they heed me, says the Lord. They didn't hear, nor would they be obedient. And, now we have uh, the uh the questions, the actual verbiage up to this point, we've sort of had narrative. Now we have the uh poetic formation is here, verse five. Your fathers, where are they? Well, they're gone. They're either dead, meaning they were killed in the military action or the the subsequent uh captivity. Or they're in exile. That's where they are. And the prophets, do they live forever? No. No, the prophets don't live forever. They died. So those who were warning the people previously, they're not here anymore. They're gone. But, verse 6, Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, your fathers, where are they? Well, they're not here. The prophets, are they here? No, they're not here. But what the prophets said, which was my word, the Lord is saying, but what I told them, did that not come true? And the answer is, yes, it did. Absolutely. Did not The message of the prophets come to pass is another way to translate this. And the answer is yes. And then we see, really, I think here we have to, it's always difficult sometimes to identify the pronouns, but it says, So they returned and said. And we know that they does not refer to the fathers who are dead and gone. So this must be somebody else, and I believe that it is the people that uh, Zechariah is addressing. They're the ones that are now going to respond, and they begin to work on the temple again. They begin to try to restore the city, and so they returned and said, I think the idea here is a very strong understanding of what I was explaining before, They repented. They changed their minds uh, about what what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't doing anything except living their own lives. And now they are going to understand that that's not right, that they're supposed to be serving the Lord. And the reason they were sent back was to restore the temple and to restore the city. So the people, the audience to whom Zachariah is speaking, repent and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us. And the word here for determined, I didn't have a chance really to explain this last week, means proposed or planned is another way of saying that uh, as determined to do this. According to our ways and according to our deeds, in other words, uh, our unfaithfulness, our disobedience, uh, our sinful ways, so has he so he has dealt with us uh, things in the land are not positive they're not encouraging um, these uh, Jews that are in the land are really under discipline, and that 's the upshot of what we have in this sort of intro. The intro sets the stage for us to understand that the Jews in the land have been complacent at best disobedient uh, is probably a better way to describe that they've not done anything and now Zechariah is pinpointing that fact Haggai did the same thing and now the people are saying yes uh, our sovereign God has dealt with us according to our deeds what we've been doing and we should we should not be surprised when this happens to us in the United States or to us individually. Uh, how does God uh, administer uh, our lives? How does he deal with us is the way that this is describing here. Well, he, he deals with us from his character. And uh, while he loves us, we still encounter his righteousness and his justice and he is a sovereign God. He is not going to allow uh, things to go unnoticed and our deeds and our actions to go un- either rewarded or unpunished. And that's the principle that we have here in verse 6. Yes, he's dealing with us according to our deeds. Now, verse 7. When we arrive in verse 7... <clears throat> we see the beginning of the uh, the visions and before I move to the visions I promised you that I would show you a map here and let me see if I can find this map should be able to everything's functioning well hopefully you can see it uh, is that visible, Bill? You're in the back. Okay. Okay. All right. You'll, on the, of course, on the one side we've got the map, and then sort of an explanation on the other side. By Zechariah's time, the borders of the land of Israel and Judah, later called Palestine, had been completely redrawn from the days before the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion. We've seen many of those maps. And we simply had Judah, which extended down beyond the Dead Sea. And remember, down below the Dead Sea is where Edom was. And, of course, the northern kingdom, which could also be called Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim, extended all the way above the Sea of Galilee. Uh, just a little bit shy of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is up there. And then Damascus was over on the right side. It didn't extend that far. But, and then on the, uh, across the Jordan, they really had recovered the areas of Gilead, Manassas, and parts of Reuben so that Ammon was really pushed further south. Well, what we see here is that the minor Persian providence uh, the minor Persian providence to which exiles of Judah returned from Babylon was now called Judea and it encompassed only a fraction of the territory that had once belonged to Judah Edomites had migrated northwest from their traditional homeland just south of Moab into the area immediately south of Judea and the land was now called Idumea, And you may remember that uh, King Herod comes from Idumea. He is uh, part Jewish, but he was also part Edomite. And therefore, the Jews really had very little respect for him, didn't like him, uh, didn't really matter to Herod. Uh, anybody he didn't like, he usually killed. So he was not the most popular king Um, so we see what the Edomites had done territory that had once belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel was divided into several different minor provinces including Samaria and of course Samaria now is uh, not really what we would call a Jewish territory there were Jews that had remained there but many of the Jews had been deported by the assyrians into their uh, empire and scattered around uh, not like the babylonians who had tried to keep uh, the jewish uh, exiles together but they had been uh, the northern kingdom had really been scattered and uh, they had also then resettled the area of samaria with uh, peoples from other areas and they had intermarried, and we've pretty much lost the uh, the purity of those living in Samaria. Now it's it is remarkable that uh, in the area of Galilee, there managed to be uh, some purity amongst the the Jews that stayed there, that remained in that area, and it became known as Galilee instead of the names of Asher and Naphtali, the, the uh, tribes that were, were up in that vicinity. Uh, now, so we can see now Judea is a much smaller area. Uh, even the uh, Philistines on the west have moved and encroached upon that area as well. And therefore, uh, the Jews that were back in the land... Uh, had certainly an accurate sense that nationally they were uh, significantly less uh, uh, significantly less of a nation is probably what we need to say okay now let's do one other thing before we begin here let's take a quick look at the visions We're going to see Zechariah's eight night visions. We're going to start with the first one tonight. And the first one in, cha- in chapter 1, verses 17, or excuse me, verse 7 through 17, is called The Rider on a Red Horse Among the Myrtle Trees. Now, there are other titles for this. I've seen several other titles just called The Riders Amongst the Myrtle Trees or Um Uh, that's close enough for that one but we're going to see a rider on a red horse and there are other riders with him secondly we have the four horns and four craftsmen still in chapter 1 but it's verses 18 through 21 we're also going to see the surveyor and his measuring line chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. Cleansing of Joshua the high priest, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'll leave this up so you'll be able to copy this down. Um, And the surveyor and his measuring line is going to be an indication of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So we're going to have, we're going to see the uh, the future of Israel moving forward here, the cleansing of Joshua the high priest. We're going to see a cleansing here, um, the uh, returning of righteousness to the priesthood. Uh, we're going to see in, in uh, as the fifth one, the fifth night vision, the lampstand and two olive trees, chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Six, the sixth night vision, is the flying scroll. Not the flying squirrel, but the flying scroll. Chapter 5, 1 through 4. Seven is the woman in the basket. It's described as an ephod and. generally also described in more in English terms as the woman in the basket chapter 5 verses 5 through 11 and then 8 the four chariots chapter 6 verse 1 through 8 verses 1 through 8 there's a an addendum that goes along with this and it's very often plugged in there as well not as a vision but just sort of as a conclusion to the uh, the 8-9 visions that Uh, concludes chapter 6 but what we have here is sort of interesting we begin with the uh, four horsemen in chapter 1 and then we return to four chariots in chapter 6 and while there is some parallel and some similarity uh, they are two completely different visions and we'll, uh, we'll certainly study them as such okay Those are the the visions. Now, uh, as we progress to chapter, uh, to verse 7, that's where we are tonight, verse 7, we're going to see, as we begin reading in chapter 7, that it says, On the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Sabbat, Shabbat, maybe a better way to pronounce that because this is a Babylonian word, uh, Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet. Now, you'll notice it says on the 24th day, what we're going to have here is that all eight night visions as near as the text reveals to us are going to occur on the same night he's going to see these one right after the other they're all going to occur on the same night and because of the importance of these revelations the dating here is given in detail when the Bible slows down and gives us specific details on something it helps us to understand that this is very important and uh, we're told that this is in the 11th month, uh, which we believe here is probably going to be uh, February for us. If we were trying to date this in the Julian calendar, as we would probably call it, it would be February the 15th of February. So uh, nice and uh, appropriate for us today. Um, I, I was uh, very pleased when I saw that. But anyhow, uh, it's Fe- February the 15th of 519. So it's a great night to study this. And it says in verse verse 7, excuse me, verse 8, I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse. And it stood amongst among the myrtle trees in the hollow... And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Now, we're going to see here in chapter, or in verse 8, I want to get to chapter 8, I'm not in chapter 8. I see here in verse, we see here in verse 8, that we have a man riding on a horse. Now, it's difficult to tell, it says that he's riding on a horse, and probably the sense of the Hebrew is that this is a rider, and... He is not at the moment possibly riding. He very well may be standing near his steed. And that seems to be uh, what we, we have in verse 10. The man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, we're going to see that the man is addressed here uh, twice. Um, and it appears that he is a writer, but he is not riding at the moment. But what he is doing is he is expecting or he is receiving those who have been writing. So he is expecting a report. And that's what we have here in verse 8. So I saw by night and behold a man who was riding on a red horse or had ridden a red horse or was a rider of a red horse, something like that. And when we see the word red, uh, those of you who have any knowledge of horses... Uh, realize that we very often call a horse red when we mean that it has a reddish hue to it. And normally, having grown up on a farm around horses and uh, ponies, uh, I I remember Dad periodically addressing a horse as being red, but mostly they were dressed as bays or as chestnuts. And in the sun, they would have the, this sort of a reddish hue to them, but they are generally brown, very often uh, darker brown horses, but they're always called red. You know, uh, here's a red horse, and in the Bible, when they're addressed as a red horse, that takes on this uh, sort of uh, figure or uh, a. Uh, a metaphor for blood, and even though it's not described that way in this verse, there's probably that sense of it here and the man is the one that was riding the red horse, and it says that it stood amongst the myrtle trees in the hollow now there's some question as to what this is and where this is uh some uh English versions translate this as a ravine others as a hollow some address this more as a basin but um, I believe that since Zechariah is in Jerusalem and much of what is going to be found in these eight visions excuse me is about Jerusalem that we are somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem and this could very easily be in the Kidron Valley these horses are down in the ravine of the Kidron Valley or sort of a hollow that's just outside the city of Jerusalem and i uh, there are other scholars that think the same and i i and i support them in that position and it says they stood amongst the myrtle trees and the myrtle trees are a uh, a tree that grew in the vicinity of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there were uh, many myrtle trees. Around there we would find olive trees, we would find uh, uh, groves of you know grapes, uh, vineyards, things of that nature. But uh, myrtle trees were quite plentiful uh, at that time. There are hardly any trees growing around there now. But there are some who say that uh, the myrtle tree was very similar to um a a pine tree a type of pine tree but it's not a type of tree that grows real high they could grow to be the size of trees maybe 10 uh, 20 feet high at the highest but many of them were more shrub like and these were the the trees that they from which they very often cut branches for the feast of tabernacles, and they would build the uh, the booths as they were called. Feasts of tabernacle, the feast of the booths, uh, when uh, when the fall rolled around, and so myrtle trees are quite plentiful there. And behind him were horses, again red, sorrel, and the sorrel color is a brownish color. And then it says and white. Uh, I remember listening to. Uh, uh, those who uh, were in the cavalry. As a matter of fact, uh, I was listening to somebody teach this uh, passage one time, and uh, he had grown up during prior to World War II, and he described these horses in some detail, and when he got to the word white, he said, uh, it is rare to find a white horse. And he said, uh, a lot of people call uh, a light gray horse, white. And he said, more than likely, that's what this is. Now, the Hebrew word here is for white. But anyhow, uh, there are many scholars, and I had another gentleman who said the exact same thing. And he had been in the in the uh, army as well, riding horses. But anyhow, uh, we see here that we have this stage set. Now, the man, who is the man? That's the first question. What we're going to see I can find my identity of speakers. Let me go over here and let's look at this because you're going to see these names popping up. First of all, we know that Zechariah is there. Uh, Zechariah in verse 8 says, I. So Zechariah is one of is a, a list of characters. I guess I could have put it that way, but the identity of the speakers. Secondly, we see this man. He's listed in verse 8. He's also listed in verse 10. And then, verse 11, identifies the man. And we believe that this man is the angel of the Lord. He's represented here as the second person of the Godhead. Therefore, it takes on a lot greater meaning when we see, I saw by night and behold a man. And we could say, who is the angel of the Lord, riding on a red horse. Well, if that's who that is, then we have um, uh, God here, the second person of the Godhead, the uh, pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we're going to see that there is an interpreting angel here. We're going to be introduced to him in our next verse, verse 9 an angel, a messenger who accompanies Zechariah. A lot of these prophets will have uh, an interpreting angel. We've seen this in several of the other prophets that we've studied. Fourth, we're going to see Yahweh addressed. And we're going to see this in verse 12 and also verse 13. And when we see that, we're going to see the first person of the Godhead. Because the angel of the Lord is going to address the, uh, it's going to address Yahweh. And in order for that to happen, we believe that this is not simply the Lord Jesus Christ representing two different people, but that we have two different individuals and two different speakers involved. And then five, we're going to see these writers. Verse 11 and we we really see them a little earlier than that. So verse 9, let me move on here to verse 9. Then I Zechariah said, "My Lord, and this is not Yahweh and we don't and this is not the angel of the Lord. He's not addressing the man. Zechariah sees the man, but he's not addressing the man. Who is he addressing? He's addressing the angel who is accompanying him. He's addressing the interpretive angel. He's there to help Isaiah what, to understand what's going on, what's happening. Then I said, Zachariah said, My Lord, Adon. Adonai is the translation, and it means Lord, master, sir, term of endear of respect. What are these? So, Zechariah, standing there, sees this vision, and again, he's not asleep. If these aren't dreams, he's interacting, he's involved. What are these? So, the angel who talked with me this is uh, the word angel here is malach. It can be either angel or it can be messenger Uh, who talked with me said to me. I will show you what these are. And the word for show is the word ra'ah, which means to see. And it's in the hifel stem, which means I will cause you to see. So I will show you is a proper translation, but he's really saying, all right, glad you ask. I'm going to cause you to see what this is. And um, now a quick uh let me pause just quickly here. We saw the colors of the horses. And uh, very often the question is asked, what is the significance of the colors of the horses? And about the best I can tell you, here in Zechariah, we're not told. Uh, Zechariah doesn't tell us that, all right, this, this color stands for this, and this color stands for this. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't even say that, the rider on this color horse has this function or the rider of this horse is carrying out this responsibility we do see that in other passages of scripture as a matter of fact uh, just quickly let's turn to revelation turn back to revelation revelation 6 revelation 6 We see these color of horses, or at least some of them. In Revelation 6, in verse, I might as well start in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, he's addressed as the Lamb, opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see! Here again, one of the four living creatures is an angel. So, throughout the Bible, and I want you to see this very clearly, we have these teaching or interpretive angels. Uh, John is dealing with a teaching angel as it's, as, uh, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ is revealed to him. But here it says, Come and see, I'm going to show you. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Uh, Therefore, this white horse is associated with conquest. Verse 3, Then he, Jesus Christ the Lamb, opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people would kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Uh, this red horse now is associated with uh, warfare and with death, execution. We might even say five. Then he, the Lord Jesus Christ, opened. Lord Jesus Christ opened the third seal. The Lamb and I heard the living third living creature say, "Come and see." So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it and had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters of barley for a denarius, and do no harm, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, this is considered uh, famine. And then, seven, then when he opened the fourth seal, the lamb, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed him and power was given over given to uh, given to them as a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword with hunger death and by beasts of the earth so this last horse the pale horse is various forms of death and people dying and going to Hades now we don't have that here in Zechariah but we have this sense that because we have a difference in the horses we have some red we have some sorrel and some that are uh, white that they do have different purposes now maybe not uh, and to speculate is sometimes dangerous because what you end up with is uh, trying to communicate something that's really not there But we do know, as we proceed here, um, that there are certain functions that these individuals are going to be required to do. Now, uh, verse 10. And the man who stood amongst the myrtle trees, among the myrtle trees, answered and said, What do we have? We have Zechariah seeing the man, seeing the horses asking the question of his interpreting angel, what is this? The interpreting angel say, I'm going to cause you to see what this is, but the interpreting angel is now not talking, it's the man, the man who was amongst the myrtle trees. And the man who stood amongst the myrtle trees, and I believe it's the angel of the Lord, answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent, and this is Yahweh, so this is the angel of the Lord speaking about God. And here, if this is Yahweh, this needs to be the first member, first person of the Trinity, has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. Um, really remarkable here. The word for walk is our normal word for halak, but it's the hithpa'el. And the hithpa'el is very often reflexive. And so it's walking going back and forth uh, so the, the ones uh, the ones that are standing before them who are riding these horses are ones going back and forth on the earth and the sense of it is that this is God and in this particular passage we're referring now to the Father who has dominion over the earth and he is sending these riders uh, back and forth over the earth and it's sort of interesting people often when we come to this will ask the question uh, why is the Lord doing that? Why is the Lord using these angels uh, sending these writers these angels to go back and forth? Well probably the easiest way to describe this is that the visions and the illustrations and the figures that we have uh, are pictures and they're meant to be taken graphically, meaning how would this appear to Zechariah? These writers uh, at that time would probably be very much representative of couriers and heralds that would ride from kings uh, rulers uh, and they would take uh, messages, they would gather information, they would bring it back to the king and so that 's the sense that we have here uh, and while God doesn't need someone to tell him what 's going on the the picture here, I believe for us uh, is communicates very clearly uh, that this information God is gathering information and bringing it back, or God is uh, well aware of what's happening throughout his His dominion, and that's what we have. Uh, notice in verse 11, it says, so the writers answered the angel of the Lord, and if you can picture this, you can see that uh, Zechariah has been brought to a place, let's say he's on the... If you've, been with me to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures of Jerusalem I probably should have one up here Uh, Jerusalem is built on really a piece of high ground that's right on the edge of the Kidron Valley and to the south of it is the Hinnon Valley and across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives And what? And Jerusalem was built along the sort of the crest of what became known as uh, broadly known as Zion. But it was the mountainous area, the hill country, right there. Uh, So you could build uh, walls along it. The temple was right along the wall. Uh, The Houses and businesses, were, merchants were inside the wall, but on the outside of the wall and, and falling down, because, and it would make it much easy, much more difficult to attack and take those walls. Was the Kidron Valley, and then across the valley was, uh, as I said, uh, the Mount of Olives. But it appears, and again, uh, after the Babylonian uh, conquest, all of these walls have been just completely destroyed. And here is Zachariah standing there watching this, what we could call, a report. Uh, What's happened is a detail of couriers has returned, and the uh, person in charge of those, uh, riders, those who have been out on reconnaissance missions, is standing waiting to take the report. And that's what Zechariah is watching. He says, what does this mean? And the angel could have said, watch. Just watch and observe. And you'll see what's happening. And that's what Zechariah does. Zechariah stands there. and This is almost the same, you could say, as uh, reporting for a morning formation. And somebody's saying, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, just let's just watch here. Let's just see how they take the Report! Report! You know, and over here, uh, one of the, uh, commander's reports. All present and accounted for, sir. Very well. Report. And he gets the reports. Well, that's what he's doing here. He's taking the report. And so, in verse 11, it says, So the writers answered the angel of the Lord, answered the command to report. And what's the report? Who stood, the, the man who stood amongst the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. This is their report. Now, I want to do two things. I want to let's see, verse eleven. Um I want to do two things. First of all, I'd like to review the angel of the Lord. Maybe what we'll do is we'll we'll do that next time. We'll come back and review the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Where has he appeared before? Well, most of you can remember in Genesis, we have the angel of the Lord appearing to uh, Abraham. But remember also at that same time, when the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham, two other angels appear with him those two angels are with the Lord and they're all walking and I'll review more of the angel of the Lord next week but this week I want to answer the question what is it with these angels why is the Lord using these why does he need these angels why are the angels uh, riding horses around the world uh, observing what's going on and then riding back and how long does it take them to do that well, these are probably special horses. They probably can cover the ground pretty quickly. Matter of fact, they probably have the ability to travel in space. And only Zechariah, as he stands there, is the one that's viewing this. No one else is watching this formation and watching the report that's being taken. But you'll notice that in the example that I'm giving you in chapter 18 of Genesis and then 19, that the Lord dispatches these two angels to go down to Sodom does the Lord need to send two angels down to Sodom to find out what's going on no he knows exactly what's going on but God uses angels in his administration of mankind the uh, the activities that go on on earth and that's what is reported by writers of scripture we have this image of the Lord administering to mankind, to the human race. And as we see this, we see the administration of blessing or we see the administration of discipline or punishment. And the Lord doesn't need to send these two men down to Sodom. They don't need to trudge down there and walk in and encounter the Sodomites. But, you could say it makes for a great story, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It makes for a marvelous story because we get a very clear picture of what happens to those two individuals down in the city of Sodom. Not only that, but we get a great story about what happens to Lot and his family. And we see the destruction that's going to occur... And we understand that it's those angels who are the ones that are going to administer the discipline on the city of Sodom. The Lord is going to send the uh, fire and brimstone down on Sodom, but these angels are clearly involved with what's happening there. They were to go down, find out if the evil is as rampant as uh, we believe it to be, or is it possibly could be or from what the Lord has heard. Remember, he says, they're going down to find out uh, if what we've heard is true. And so they find out what's true. They get Lot and his family out of there, the few that are believers, and then the fire and brimstone is rained down on uh, Sodom. Now, we have many other places where we can go to see angels. But the other place that I would like to go that often is questioned is in the book of Revelation so let's go back to the book of Revelation and we're going to see remember that what's happening in Genesis 18 and 19 of course is happening even prior to the age of Israel what's happening here in Zechariah is still during the age of Israel when we arrive in Revelation, Revelation verse chapter two, verse one, what are we seeing? We're seeing the uh, a period of the church. This is the church age. Chapter two and chapter three are descriptions of the church age. Chapter 4 is the throne room of heaven, and we understand that the rapture has occurred. Therefore, what we are experiencing, what we're reading, what we're learning in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is the various conditions of churches throughout history. Some take this to be a progressive thing. The sort of the historicist view is that the first church here, in Ephesus was the church that began in the at the beginning of the church age and ran for several centuries and then we began the next church the church of, of Smyrna but i, I don't it, you really have to kind of stretch it to make that work and i don't see that as being uh the proper interpretation here i think these are churches that can appear at any time during the church age and in fact we have churches like this today uh, in the United States, outside the United States, that fall into these categories. But let's just see here, verse 1, chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, why do we address this as, uh, why is this being, uh, being addressed to an angel? Well, this is a question that has been argued down through history. And there are many, who say, well, this is uh the word for angel, angelos, and an angel, or excuse me, we just transliterate it to mean an angel. What we should really say is to the messenger and to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. And therefore, well, this is probably the pastor. Well, that's no better than angel. You know, to the pastor of the Church of Ephesus, right? Uh, you know what? What are we what are we going to do with that? Well, first of all, nowhere else in the Bible, I guess the New Testament is where we kind of want to uh, confine this. Do we have the word "angelos" describing a pastor? Secondly, um, I guess you could say that this could be maybe work out well if you want to say that. Well angelos here might work out better if it's a pastor, but if we understand the administration of God and how God works, this works very nicely because God uses angels to administer to mankind, just like we're now seeing in Zechariah. And in Zechariah, these angels are the ones that are going out around the world to be the Supposedly, we can say this, the eyes and ears of the Lord and bringing back information. Well, the Lord knows what's going on, but he's employing these angels. The angels learn from this, and we learn as well. We understand that God uses his creatures to serve him. and here, the angel of the church of Ephesus chapter verse eight, chapter two, verse eight. And, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, verse twelve. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, eighteen. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, verse one of chapter three. To the angel of the church in Sardis, verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and then finally in verse fourteen, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Uh, The reason that the Lord is addressing it this way is because it's angels who administer blessing and it's angels who also administer the discipline. Uh, You might say, well, how does that work? How do the angels actually administer either the blessing or the discipline? well I don't know that I know I don't know that I can answer that Uh, but what I do know is that throughout scripture in various places we see the angels acting in God's behalf this is how God is going to administer to mankind and he has an angel do it he has an angel free Peter from prison he has an angel free the disciples and then later on the, or I should say the uh, apostles from prison and that's how he does this various things and these angels have the information about the church who's in that area and this is the angel that's going to carry out either the blessing or the discipline to that congregation and um, I don't know um how the uh, you know the angels do that I don't I'm not going to go so far as to say that the uh, guardian angels that we might have in and around us are the ones that actually administer the discipline to us. Uh, we know that the righteousness of God is the standard, and we know that his justice is what uh, makes the decision on the discipline, and we receive that discipline. but these angels are used as messengers, they're used as administrators, they're used as uh, those who are protecting and those who even uh, are uh, administering discipline or justice. So I think that's how we need to view these writers in Zechariah chapter 1. They are uh, used for their benefit to actually see how God functions. It's a continual reminder to them of who God is and his character. And then it makes a great picture for us to understand the very same thing about God, his character, uh, his sovereignty, and how he functions and how he works. Um, Therefore, how do do we see these uh, angels in Revelation? We see them as angels. And that's how they should be interpreted. Okay. Okay. Now when we go back to Zechariah we've sort of finished verse 11 says so they answered the angel of the Lord who stood amongst the myrtle trees and said we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold all the earth is resting quietly. What does this mean? Well it appears that these writers have brought back the report from uh, what they've observed and at this particular time in the the uh, uh, the Persian Empire things are relatively quiet throughout the empire. There's very few times during the, the time of the Persian Empire when it really was that quiet but here we are. Uh, it's a period of relative peace. Uh, there's another possibility and I may expound on this a little bit later or this could be the early description of what's beginning right after the tribulation. Uh, and we're now going to begin to see the end-timed revelation. So when we come back next week, um, we'll begin in verse 12 of chapter 1. And really what we're going to see here is sort of an interpretation, or what we're going to see is the uh, report of the comfort uh, and the provision that God is going to give to Israel and there's seven different uh, sort of a sevenfold comfort that God is going to reveal. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, this first vision. We're thankful that what we learn from it is Father, that you are in charge. If there's any ever any doubt that you are sovereign and that you are in control of human history, then this passage should set it aside for us. Uh, You give us this picture of angels, riders, uh, moving around on earth and providing the information to you. Well, what we do know is that you are omniscient and you are omnipresent, so you have this information. But it still gives us the picture that you're involved and that you know what's happening And that you also are the administrator of either what does happen, what is directed, or what you allow to happen. Help us, Father, to live our lives that way. And we pray that the United States would uh, have this same understanding that we need uh, to function in a way that is righteous. We need to be obedient. We need to uh, live our lives in uh, conformity. To uh, divine institutions and divine principles, uh, so that we might be blessed, Father. That these angels that administer to the different nations and different locales in nations would see this obedience and this faithfulness, and that the blessings would then flow to us. And we're thankful that we are blessed. We pray that that would continue. And we continue to ask for uh, your blessing upon this administration as it continues to get on its feet that it will be able to gather itself, that it will have uh, the right people in the right positions, uh, not only just at the cabinet level, but all the way down to uh, all the workers in each one of these areas. And we pray for the success of our intelligence networks and also for the military, that, uh, Father, we would uh, be properly administered and administered in a way that uh, would allow us to be blessed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.